beloved brethren and sisters. And many, many and for many reasons. I'm very glad that I may address you tonight. In the first place, because it is my conviction that the history we are making, and especially the history we have made in the first Protestant Reformed Church of Grand Rapids is in many ways similar to the history we made in 1924. I think it was in the same spot if I'm not mistaken, at least in the community hall of hope, uh, that in March 1925, I explained to the people in hope and in Sioux County in the afternoon and in the evening day after day the difference that separated us from the Christian Reformed Churches. I explained in detail at that time the well-known three points that were adopted by the Christian Reformed Churches in Kalamazoo in 1924. I explained and emphasized that in general there is no common grace and that particularly the preaching of the gospel is not grace to everyone that hears the gospel, but is grace only for the elect. On that basis, the church in hope, and afterwards the other churches in Sioux County were organized. And still later, the church in Edgerton and the church in Manhattan was established. On that basis, and on no other basis, it is my conviction, as I hope to show tonight, that by this time, 27 or 28 years later, 
we have again departed from that basis. I do not enter in tonight to the controversy that has been raging in our churches about the question of conditions. That is not necessary and it would simply tempt me from the course which I intend to follow. I want you to know that I'm not here to convert anyone. I do not convert people. I'm not here to represent any faction in our churches. There is no such thing as a Huxima faction in our churches. I represent, and you may controvert me if you wish, I represent the cause of the Protestant Reformed truth. The same as I represented in 1924 and no other cause. In the second place, I want to say a word of introduction as to the purpose of my speech. You must not expect any oratory from me tonight. All I want to do is present to you the mere facts. I'm not even going to try to color the facts. I wish to present to you the truth of the whole controversy in our Protestant Reformed Church in Grand Rapids. And nothing more than that truth. If, after presenting that truth, you are not quite convinced, you can present your questions, and I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability. I think that is as fair as anybody can possibly expect. In the third place, I want to say that I'm not here to talk about personalities. I will avoid all personalities in which I'm not interested. If any of you, however, want to ask personal questions that concern me, I'm very glad to give account of myself, even though I'm not here for that purpose. This meeting is purely meant to be an informative meeting. 
I want to give you information, and the information will have to be given in the way of facts, in the way of the plain and clear truth. I have nothing to hide, nothing whatsoever, and I will present the case as it develops. And then I wish to say in the first place that I will enter in after a brief introduction concerning the situation in my own church with which you are not acquainted, of course. I want to enter in, in the first place, into the doctrinal issue. After all, that is of chief importance to you and to me. If there is no doctrinal issue, we could not possibly have separated as we did in the first church. But there is a doctrinal issue, and that doctrinal issue I'm going to make plain to you. In the second place, I'm going to enter into the fact, the question of the church's political procedure. And I'm going to tell you exactly what happened in that respect. First of all, then, let me try to acquaint you with my church in Fuller Avenue. You understand, of course, that the thing like this that causes separation in a congregation does not come as a thunderclap out of a clear sky. It was not so in Fuller Avenue. Certainly, you can understand that a serious thing as a split in a congregation which is liable to extend in the churches is not coming all of a sudden and did not come of a sudden in the church which I represent. There's long history even in Fuller Avenue. I believe I read in Concordia that it is too bad that what belongs together has been torn asunder. That is not true. What belongs together has remained together. And what does not belong with us has torn itself from us as it should be. That is the truth. And that is not only a question of uh, one or two statements that were proclaimed from the pulpit, but it is the question of the history of our congregation in the last, oh, the last six, seven, eight years. The thing developed. It gradually became more and more evident that they were in our midst 
that were not Protestant Reformed at heart and in their confession. It started to manifest itself very plainly and very clearly when we finally determined to establish our own Protestant Reformed Christian school. I always agitated, I always recommended to my people from the very beginning of the history of 1924 that we should have a school of our own because if our children were instructed in the schools of the Christian Reformed Churches, we could never expect them to remain Protestant Reformed. But for a long time there was no action. But when that action was finally started, maybe some ten years ago, the opposition to that movement became very manifest. There were many that opposed that movement with all that was in them. They hated the very idea of establishing a Protestant Reformed Christian school. And they did not go along. That that is true may be evident to you from the fact that even now, when we have established a school of our own, have established nine grades of lower education that are in all grand efforts drawing from the four churches in grand efforts representing I think some 650 families only 300 children that attend our school no more that I think is a bad sign oh I know that Protestant Reformed schools cannot easily be established everywhere. But wherever it is established, and wherever it can be established, I think it's a very evil sign that Protestant Reformed people oppose that movement and refuse to send their children. Now we have separated most all of our people that meet Sundays in the Christian High School of Grand Rapids are in favor of that school. That is evident from the fact that from our people alone we collected for the Adam Street Christian School, our own school, just as much in one collection as otherwise we collected in the whole congregation together. That's one thing. That, of course, filled me not only with grief, but also with apprehension. The second evidence 
that things were not as they should be was manifest when the Declaration of Principles was adopted. That Declaration of Principles, which is a thoroughly Protestant Reformed document and which should have been adopted at the beginning of our history, that Declaration of Principles was the second offense, the second occasion that many took offense in my own congregation. There are other signs. Our English Men's Society, a year ago, was in the habit of asking after recess speakers from the Christian Reformed Church, Calvin College professors, De Vries, Monsma, Staub, Fantil, and others, were preferred above and to our own Protestant Reformed ministers, and they spoke for them on all kinds of subjects. Some of our ladies attend the Reformed Bible Institute, a Christian Reformed institution of very dubious character. And there they enjoy themselves very much. And they learn, as they say, to witness for Christ. All these things developed in our congregation. And then the sermons of the Reverend Wolf, to which protests were lodged, was the next objection, and the next item, and the next stage of development in the history. I can tell you, now we have separated, or rather, now they have separated from us, and we meet in a separate building. All our people are glad. With one accord, with one mind, with one heart and soul, they join in worship as they never did before. That is true of myself. I was very glad when finally we had gone apart. I could not live anymore in that atmosphere, in that atmosphere of corruption that characterized our first Protestant Reformed Church. That was true of the Reverend Hancock who was very glad and relieved when finally we worshipped in a place by ourselves. That was true of our whole consistory and that was true of all our people. Brethren and sisters, I assure you, we did not belong together anymore and we will not join together again unless the Lord works miracles and gives 
to those people repentance. That is the fact. Now about the sermons, it has been said more than once that the whole thing in Fuller Avenue in my church was a question of a couple of statements. Even if that were the case, I want to tell you uh, that those statements were serious and implied a very serious heresy. And the consistory, let me say, could not possibly condone and support that heresy and let the Reverend Wolf continue to preach as he did. I'll make that plain presently. But it is not even true that it was a question of two statements and nothing else. I have here an official document which I presented to our consistory and which later went to the classes in which I relate the history of the case. I want to read that to you and explain as much as is necessary. I have here a brief history of the case. I read the sermons preached by the Reverend H. DeWolf in April 1951 and in September 1952. The sermons preached. The sermon of April 15, 1951. On this date, the Reverend DeWolf preached a sermon which I did not hear personally. I want to emphasize that. I did not hear that sermon. They say that this uh, is a Huxuma case. It's not true at all. This was not a Huxuma case from the very beginning. Not at all. I didn't even start the case. It was more than a year afterwards that I, I entered into the case, not before. You must remember that personally I am often not present at my own consistory meetings. If the consistory were here, they would know that. My doctor advises me because of my condition and because of my sickness six years ago, the doctor advises me to avoid excitement as much as possible. And because of that, and also because the consistent meetings always took place on Monday evening, and at 8 o'clock the next morning, or 9 o'clock, I at school, theological school, I avoided 
the consistent meetings as much as possible. In the second place, I say again, I did not hear that sermon. I could have heard it because I have a loudspeaker in my own home connected with the church. And I could easily have checked up on that sermon, but I did not. Uh, but immediately after the sermon, uh, several people called me up and said, what is the trouble with the Reverend Wolf tonight? He was certainly not prophecy formed. They called me up. I told them, I did not hear the sermon, and you better go and visit the Reverend Wolf. I don't know what they did. But uh, then the consistories received the consistory received protests on that sermon in nineteen fifty one, April nineteen fifty one. And there were several protests. I will not mention the name of, of the Protestants at that time, but there were several. And these protests, uh, let me first of all say this. Uh, I did not hear I say the sermon personally, uh, but in which, according to the protest received by the consistory, the Reverend Wolf spoke as follows. Quote, God promises every one of you that if you believe, you shall be saved. I quote more, you have nothing to do with election and reprobation. Your responsibility is to believe. If you believe, you shall be saved. This according to one protest. According to another, he said, quote, election and reprobation have nothing to do with the gospel, unquote. Listen, the Reverend Wolf denied having made these statements. There is no record of it. We usually have records of sermons, but there was no record of this sermon. Nevertheless, there were two testimonies which agreed, at least in this, that the Reverend Wolf belittled and deprecated the truth of election and reprobation, which is the basis and the heart of the Reformed truth, and especially of the Protestant Reformed truth. But he also said this, and this he does not deny. Quote, Some of you carry Protestant Reformed, Reformed truth on the lapel of your coat. You are proud of being Protestant Reformed. Don't think you go to heaven because you are Protestant Reformed. Unquote. These statements he admits to have made. I insist that in a sermon that contains these statements, 
the rest of the sermon cannot possibly be Protestant reform. I claim no Protestant reform man can possibly say in the first place God promises every one of you that if you believe you shall be saved. That's not for us before. Let me analyze that a moment. God promises. Remember that that sermon was preached on the evening of April 15, 1951. That is, immediately after the classes East adopted the Declaration of Principles, in which it was maintained, strongly maintained, that the promise of God is unconditional and is for the elect only. That was April 15, 1951. What does it mean? The man life. Mind you, the Reverend Wolf did not say, I preach to you the promise that if you believe you shall be saved, that would have been not quite clear, but it would have passed muster. He didn't say that. He didn't mean to say that either. He said, God promises. God promises. Now the promise of God is, the, is in the first place an oath. What God promises, He fulfills. In 1924, we opposed the doctrine of the Christian Reformed Churches that maintained that. God is gracious and the well-meaning offer of salvation to everybody. This is word. This is not a question of a well-meaning offer of the gospel. This is the question of God's promise. God promises. What God promises he swears by himself to fulfill. Moreover, what God promises to anyone, he surely promises in his grace. When God promises salvation, he certainly is gracious to the one to whom he promises. There's no question of that. Even the liberated, the liberated is uh, very similar to the doctrine as far as the covenant is concerned. Professor Feynoff, in his appeal, as you probably know, insists that the promise 
of God is for every child that is baptized and, moreover, he is consistent. He also writes that that promise of God to everyone that is baptized is given to every child in God's grace. But this is stronger yet. God promises, that is, he swears with an oath to every one of you. That was the idea. That was not the idea. That was the statement. God promises to every one of you in the audience, every one of you, that is, everyone that was in his hearing, whether members of the church or outsiders, he didn't know, whether carnal seed or spiritual seed, whether elect or reprobate, he didn't know. Everyone, every one of you, he said, God promises every one of you. And he added to that the conditional clause, if you believe. You say, perhaps, that limits, that limits the statement? It does not. It does not limit the statement as, as far as God promises concerned. God promises to every one of you, that is the general promise, if you believe. I say again, if the Reverend Wolf had said, I proclaim that if you believe, you shall be saved. That's something else. Something entirely different. Or even if he had said, I proclaim that God promises to everyone that believes. That would have been still reformed. Even according to the canons. We did say that. He said, God promises every one of you, if you believe, you shall be saved. I put that in connection with the sermon. And I claim, I, I was not the one that protested against the sermon. Let me repeat that. I didn't. Others protested. I wasn't at the consistory. I didn't even know what was going on at the consistory for a long, long time. But when I came in contact with it through a committee, I wrote my opinion, black on white, on the sermon which the Reverend Wolf preached, and I sent it to the consistory. It was not a protest at that time, but I wrote my opinion about the sermon. That was the first sermon preached. The second sermon I heard. And if anything, that to my mind was still worse. That was preached on September 1952, a year and a half after this sermon. I was in church then. I heard the sermon. And 
the ashes of the whole sermon. Not only a statement or two, but the essence of the whole sermon. Except the last few sentences, maybe two, three sentences, was this. Our act of conversion is a prerequisite or condition to enter into the kingdom of God. He made that statement literally in connection with the sermon on Matthew 18, verses 1, 2, 3, or 4. He made that statement literally, but he also emphasized it throughout his sermon. Our act of conversion, a prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God. You know what that means. Prerequisite means something that is required of us beforehand. That's the prerequisite. In other words, we must convert ourselves before we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not only is that contrary to all that the confession ever teaches, I refer you to canons 3 and 4, 10 to 12 and so on, it is contrary also directly to Scripture. The Word of God teaches us that we are translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. God's translation into the kingdom of God's dear Son is first sense to read. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How then can our conversion, our act of conversion, be something that God requires of us before we enter into the kingdom of God? That was his sermon. That was the sermon throughout. Let me say too, it was a prepared sermon, supposed to be. There was no Christ and no cross in it. I emphasized that in my protest. I protested against that sermon. I made a protest against that sermon. And I protested at the consistory 
but there was no cross in that sermon. One of my elders remarked that he nevertheless had mentioned the cross once. I was present, I don't believe it, but even that certainly cannot possibly be sufficient for a prepared sermon on that text. The cross is the entrance into the kingdom of God. The entrance through which we enter only as we are regenerated before. Christ is the entrance into the kingdom of God. In this connection, I cannot refrain from issuing to all of you a word of warning. I'll do it. You know, we talk about so much in our day and in our churches. If we talk about responsibility, we talk about the activity of faith and similar things. I warn you that on that basis and in that line we're going to lose the gospel. We're going to lose the gospel. We're going to lose election. We're going to lose reprobation. We're going to lose the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. We must preach the activity of faith by the activity of faith. I mean, not something that you and I must do except that first of all by the activity of faith we cling to Christ and embrace him and all his benefits that is the activity of faith responsibility don't you ever forget that the accusation that reformed people cannot maintain responsibility has always been brought against. The reformed people have always been accused of denying responsibility by those that are Arminians and modern. We do not deny responsibility. We do not deny the activity of faith. Of course not. But I warn you, with the emphasis 
that are laid upon these things, upon conditions, upon activity of faith, and upon responsibility, you can lose the gospel. That's my warning. Well, those were the sermons preached. I protested. For a long time, the consistory treated the case. For a long time. You must not think that that was easy for our consistory, or that they were eager to take action against one of their ministers. It was not. For over two years, this case has been pending. For over two years. We asked the Reverend Wolf to apologize. We asked him to make up his own apology and publish it from the pulpit as he pleased in his own words. Personally, in the meeting of the consistory, I even suggested that he should make a sort of an apology in a sermon, in the course of a sermon. Nothing availed. I have a suspicion that's my suspicion on which, uh, for which I have put a good basis uh, that if the Reverend Wolf had been alone he would probably have apologized. He didn't. Now, he had supporters in the congregation. Then, we finally had a motion in the consistory. I wasn't present at that time either to suspend it. That motion was carried by the majority of the consistory to suspend the Reverend Wolf. That suspension must, of course, be carried out with the advice of a neighboring consistory. The neighboring consistory was Fourth Church. We called in the Fourth Church, and the Fourth Church objected that our consistory had not first decided formally to suspend the Reverend Wolf. They had made a motion that he should be suspended, but they had not definitely and formally decided to suspend the Reverend Wolf before they asked the fourth consistory that should be done, of course. So it was decided to meet apart 
for a minute or a while and uh, carry out the decision of our church. At that meeting, we once more uh, postponed the suspension. We were reluctant. The consistency did not mean to spend the revenue. They were reluctant. Hence, we sent the four church home and we decided that uh, the Reverend Wolf should put an answer, black and white, of the protest that had been lodged against him on both sermons. That was done. The answer was in no wise satisfactory. Then the consistory decided and there I was present uh, to let the Reverend Wolf submit himself to an examination on the basis of the formula of subscription. That was done. And the answers that Reverend Wolf stated that he still maintained both the statements and the doctrine contained in it. That was the substance of the answers. There's more. The questions and answers, of course, were all recorded. I have a copy of it. If necessary, I'll publish the whole thing from beginning to end. I have a copy of all my protests, of all the other protests, a copy of all the answers and questions and answers, and if necessary, I'll say I published the whole thing. Should be done, probably, in addition to the history of the Protestant churches. In the meantime, you must not forget the consistory changed. That is, the personnel of the consistory changed. It was January. New elders were installed and the consistory became weaker because new persons entered into the consistory. One of the elders, moreover, that was newly installed was one of our strong Protestant Reformed elders, Mr. Van Allen. The Lord took him away soon after he became elder. So we were crippled. You must not forget that in order to understand the rest of the action of the condition. I was not present very often the consistory changed personnel. The result was that the meeting finally decided to approve of the answers to the questions given by the Reverend Wolf, in which he plainly stated that he maintained the statements which were made by the, in the two sermons. I say I was not present, otherwise, otherwise 
they could not even have had a majority. So slim was, so tense was the relation between the so-called minority and majority. If I had been there and my vote had been cast, they would not even have, have had a majority for that motion. But they did. And I was glad they did because I thought it would be better that the case would go to, in the opening, would go to the classes. And so I did. At that time, after they decided that, I sent the following document to my consistory. This was February 2, 1953. Esteemed brother, I am very sorry that in a reply to the questions with which he was confronted by the consistory, that Edward Wolf fully maintains the heresy implied in the statement. A. God promises every one of you that if you believe, you shall be saved. B. Our act of conversion is a prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God. I had indeed hoped that he would see and acknowledge the error of these teachings so that we might again have fellowship with one another in the light, something which I earnestly desire and without which I cannot live. But in this, I was deeply disappointed. That Aaron the Wolf not only assumes full responsibility for his erroneous statements, but in addition to this, and to defend himself, he defends the Bathian heresy that the kingdom of God is like the vertical line intersecting the horizontal line on the plane of our existence. I am very sorry for all this. My heart bleeds for our Protestant Reformed churches. Nevertheless, I want the consistory to know, one, that it is impossible for me to condone such preaching, that I will never leave the impression that I condone it officially by officially shaking hands or by allowing anyone officially to shake hands with me that condones it. Two, that therefore, if the consistory nevertheless condones such preaching and teaching as they did, I will consider myself cast out by the consistory and the consistory will have to take action accordingly. Three, that as soon as possible and necessary, I will publish this whole case with all the documentary evidence in order that our people may, at least, be able to take a conscious stand in the matter. That was my uh, answer to the consistory after it approved of those questions. Then, of course, the matter came to the class. 
I will be brief about that. The classes, after a good deal of deliberation, and don't mistake that, don't mistake uh, the deliberation for hesitation. There was no hesitation on the part of the classes. The classes even finally adopted the following decision without a dissenting vote. There was no vote against it. Oh, there was a long deliberation. There was an attempt on the part of the majority of the committee to defend, not to defend, but to interpret the statements of the Reverend Wolf in a good sense. But they could. The committee, the majority of the committee itself, acknowledged that in the classes later on. And the decision of the classes, which the classes finally took, reads as follows. In our opinion, the statements which the Protestants condemn are literally heretical, regardless of what the Reverend Wolf meant by them, regardless of how he explains them, because the first teaches a general promise of God and to salvation to all that externally hear the preaching of the gospel, head for head and soul for soul, limited by a condition which man must fulfill, what scripture and confession plainly teach, one, that indeed the proclamation of the gospel comes to all to whom God in his good pleasure sent it. Two, that however, in our proclamation of the gospel, we may never say that God promises salvation to every one of the hearers on condition of faith. For the promise itself is particular, unconditional, and only for the elect. For it is an oath of God, which he, in his everlasting mercy and grace, swears by himself to his beloved elect, which he, by sovereign grace, fulfills only to and in them, without any condition or prerequisite to be fulfilled by them, and which promise implies that by his Holy Spirit he causes them to receive an appropriate salvation by a true and living faith. The second teaches that our act of conversion is a prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God, which means that we convert and humble ourselves before we are translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God, dear Son. What scripture and the confessions plainly teach, one, that the whole work of our conversion, regeneration, in the narrow as well as in the widest sense, in virtue of which we humble ourselves 
is sovereignly wrought by God, by spirit and word, through the preaching of the gospel in his elect. That this entire work of conversion, too, that this entire work of conversion is our translation and entry into the kingdom of God. Hence, it is not and cannot be before, but through our conversion, that we enter the kingdom. We humble ourselves in the light, never in darkness. We humble ourselves, whether initially or repeatedly, in the kingdom, never outside of the kingdom. Hence, our act of conversion is never antecedent to our entering in, but is always performed in the kingdom of God, and there are no prerequisites. Ground. A. The Protestants have clearly shown from Scripture and the Confession that the literal statements are heretical. B. We believe this is necessary for us to state in the light of our past experiences and history with the liberated churches who use these uh, statements. Two classes advises the consistory of the first church. A. To demand that the Reverend Wolf make a public apology for having made these two statements in question. B. That the consistory also publicly apologizes for having supported the Reverend Wolf with respect to the grounds that raised the first statement and then the grounds are given. Grounds they raise the second statement, grounds are given again for the scripture and the confession. Three, classes further advises the consistory of first church that in case that Evan Wolf should refuse to apologize, which our God graciously forbid, the consistory proceeds to suspend him from the office of the ministry of the word and the sacraments according to the pertinent articles of the DKO, the church order. B, that in case any elder or elders to refuse to submit to the proposed action as stipulated under 2B, which God graciously forbids, such elder or elders be disciplined according to the articles of the DKO pertaining thereto. Grounds, Article 79 and 80 of the Church Order. Four, that classes appoint a delegation of three ministers and two elders to personally acquaint the consistory with the above decision and advice at the earliest possible consistory meeting. Found A. Almost all the elders of the First Church are absent from classes meeting and thus are not aware of the five days of deliberation which preceded the above advice. B. The matter is one of great magnitude 
and important. See, we owe the Mother Church of our entire denomination such courtesy and respect. See, we should spare no efforts on our behalf under the blessings of our covenant God to serve our brethren and all. That is the decision of pleasure. On June 1, I'm almost through, on June 1, the consistent met with the committee of class. The Reverend Paul spoke. That speech is recorded. I have it here. It's too long to read. It may be published in the future. The Reverend Paul spoke. He begged the consistory in terms of love and firm conviction to act according to the advice of the class. After he spoke, the consistory that is the opposing elders immediately tried to block the whole procedure. Let me tell you what happened. After the Reverend Horst spoke, one of the opposing elders made a motion to adjourn that was supported. The politics was, of course, to save time and to gain time because still another elder had to be installed. And that elder was surely on their side. That's what they were looking for. Motion to adjourn while it was yet early, while the matter was important, but that motion was defeated. We still had the majority in the contingency. Then a motion was made to adopt the advice of the classes and to act accordingly. That was supported. Then a motion was made again by one of the opposing elders to table the matter. Again for the same reason. For the same political reason. To table the matter. Waiting, save time, gain time. That was the whole sole reason. That too was defeated. Then the motion was adopted. The motion that the consistory adopt the advice of the classes and act accordingly. Now mind you, it is very important that you understand this motion. Because that motion meant that the whole thing was decided by the consistory. Not to forget it. That motion passed by the consistory meant 
that if they did not apologize, they were suspended and they were deposed. They certainly would be suspended and would be deposed according to the decision of the consistory in June 1. The matter was settled. They asked for time. We thought that they wanted time to consider the matter. They didn't. They asked for time, nevertheless. We gave them time. Two weeks later, on June 15, we called another meeting. Again, in the presence of the classroom committee. We thought it better to have the classroom committee present and witness all that happened in our history. They can still testify to the whole procedure. At that meeting, again, the Reverend Boss spoke first, and then the question was asked whether they were ready to apologize. They said they were not ready. Two weeks' time, they were not ready to apologize. I then made a motion that that will also explain the strange fact that uh, one elder was deposed after being in office 48 hours. I made a motion uh, to postpone the installation of the new elder on the ground in the first place that he didn't know anything about the whole business. Brand new elder had never served in the consistory at all. Didn't know anything about the case. It couldn't very well start to enter into the case again after the case had been pending for two years. So I made a motion, first of all, on that ground, that we postpone the installation of the new elder. And the second ground was that the elder that was to be installed was the brother-in-law of the Reverend War. We had already one brother-in-law of the Reverend Wolf in the consistory, and our second one, for which there was no need at all. And so I, on those two grounds, I advised or made a motion to postpone the installation of the new elder. The remark was made that the decision to install the new elder had already been made, and that therefore it would require a two-thirds majority of the consistory, and of course a two-thirds majority I could never have, you understand that. And so that was dropped. June 21, June 22, uh, 27, that was the next meeting of the consistory. Then the new elder had been installed and served. At that meeting, June 22, I asked the president, I was present, I asked the president 
to ask the Reverend Wolf and to ask the elders that had been condemned by the classes to apologize, whether they were ready to apologize. Immediately, one of the opposing elders got up and said, we must have a motion for that. I said, we do not need a motion. Had been decided. Had been decided in June 1 that we should act according to the advice of the classes. That it has been decided that we should ask them to apologize or that they should be suspended and deposed. That was decided. No, we must have a motion. They felt, of course, as uh, if they could defeat it. That stands to reason. They now had a new element. Very well. I said, doesn't make any difference anyway, because you surely cannot vote in your own case. Well, the motion to ask the Reverend Wolf to apologize was made and supported and it was defeated by 11 to 11. One elder on our side did not vote. Otherwise it would have been 12 to 11. But at the same time the chairman ruled properly that they could not possibly vote in their own case. And the case of the Wolf was also the case of the elders. They stood together. <coughs> they supported him. Nevertheless, they, by their illegal vote, on June 22, had plainly expressed that they did not want the Reverend Wolf to apologize. Now they say, there's no truth in it, now they say that uh, they uh, merely meant uh, that he did not have to apologize according to the decision of classes. He could make his own apologies. No word of, uh, of anything like that in the minutes. The motion was simply that the wolf, the Reverend Wolf, should be asked to apologize. And they rejected that motion. They did. That is, the, by the illegal voting of those elders, they rejected that motion. They did not want the Reverend Wolf to apologize. The same is true of the motion to ask the elders to apologize. That was carried even when they voted again illegally in their own case by a vote of 12 to 11. Even then we had the majority. But again in that meeting by voting illegally, the elders very plainly expressed that they did not want to apologize, that they did not want 
to abide by the cessation of classes which the meeting of John 1 had decided. Mind you, John 1 is the basis of the whole business. John 1 we decided by the majority of the consistory to abide by the cessation of classes, to adopt it and to act accordingly. June 22nd, that the elders plainly stated that they did not want to abide by the cessation of classes whatsoever. They were, therefore, virtually suspended in the boat. Now it has been said that the Wolf made an apology. I want to acquaint you with that apology, too. In the first place, let me uh, say this. Uh, that apology of the Grand Wall was first made on Sunday night during the sermon of the Reverend Wolf. He was still preaching. Was made from the pulpit. Many thought uh, that he had really apologized, but he didn't. In the consistory of June 22, we asked the Reverend to produce the record of the apology he had made in his sermon on the previous Sunday. The sermon was recorded, and the Reverend Wolf himself had the record. He could therefore have simply produced the record to the consistory as was asked. He refused. I was not there when that sermon was preached. I think I preached somewhere else. I wasn't there anyway. But many of our consistory, including the Reverend Opa claims that he said something entirely different from what he now offered at the consistory. The Reverend Wolf claims that this is the reproduction of a statement from the pulpit on June 21. But many claim it isn't. He did not want to produce the record. This could not stand in any court, in any worldly court. Nevertheless, I read it. This he offered, nevertheless, as his apology. Let me read it and explain it, please. As far as those statements are concerned, I'm ready to say that I'm sorry that they were not clear and therefore left room for wrong interpretation. I asked you, is that true? Can any one of you say conscientiously that those statements were not clear? God promises every one of you that if you believe, you shall be saved. Is there anything not clear in these statements? I deny it. 
Is there anything unclear in the statement? Our act of conversion is a prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God. I say there is not. There was no room for misinterpretation. The statements that the classes had said, the classes had declared, the statements are heretical regardless of what the rule means or how he explains them. They are heretical. They should simply have been retracted. He should simply have apologized. He did not. Listen, as far as these statements are concerned, I'm ready to say that I'm sorry they were not clear. And therefore, that left room for misinterpretation. I would like to explain that by the first statement, I had no intention at all to teach that God promises salvation to all men, and that it depends on man's own will whether or not he will be saved. I have never taught this, and could not have intended to teach this by this statement. Nevertheless, he did teach that by the statement. That's the question. I offer you, and offer to defend it any time, that the statement, God promises, every one of you, if you believe you shall be saved, is simply a general promise of the part of God limited by a condition of man. Nothing else. You can never, you can never explain it in any other way. Especially in the light of the statement that he made too. Election and reprobation belittled. Protestant reform truth on the level of your coat, some of you. And all those things. I cannot understand that a Protestant reform man will ever preach a thing like that from the boat. I can understand that. As far as the second statement is concerned, I did not mean to teach that the natural man must convert himself when he's in the power of darkness, outside of the kingdom of God. Didn't he teach that? That the same thing? Our act of conversion is a prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God. I told him again and again, that's exactly what he meant. He could never explain it either. We had this in the history again and again. And I tried to explain. And he understood it too. He simply didn't want to apologize for it. And again I say, that's not a question of those simple statements. It's the question of the whole sermon. The whole sermon was bad, without any question. Even said, with an appeal to Luke 13, if you don't convert yourself, you go to hell. Is that uh, preaching to the Church of Jesus Christ? Is that the act of conversion that must be a prerequisite to enter the, the kingdom of God? If that is the case, we lost. We lost forever. Entirely lost. That's modernism. Worse than modernism. I said that too in my protest. I maintain that that sermon was modernism. I published that. When necessary. And also... Also, this is says, contrary to anything I have preached. If, therefore, I have offended anyone by not stating clearly what I meant, and thus gave an occasion for misinterpretation, I'm sorry. That's no apology. 
I did not misinterpret the statement. I certainly didn't. Understood them. I still understand them. And I interpreted them correctly without my question. The classes did the same thing. Well, that's the end. Except that, of course, at that meeting, I finally left. You couldn't do anything with that because history that voted against the classes that had already virtually separated themselves from the churches, they did, that voted against that the Reverend Wolf should, should apologize, they voted against the decision of classes that the elders should be deposed if they did not apologize, they had separated themselves. They had condemned themselves on June 22 when the whole consisted was present by voting against the decision of class. Hence I left. The next evening, they had a meeting, not of a minority of the consistory. We still have a majority of the consistory, not a minority. And they called all the elders and ministers. The deacons, of course, are never present in our consistory in cases of discipline. They sometimes say, and they alleged also uh, in this case, that in 1924, uh, nevertheless, the deacons uh, also were present. Also, in that, uh, at that time, the deacons were never present in any case of discipline. Never were. Besides, don't forget that this was a case where elders were deposed. 1924, the whole consistory was deposed. This was a case where elders were deposed and a minister was suspended by the consistory. 1924 was a case where the consistory and the minister was deposed by the classes, something which we could never admit. And therefore, when in, on June 23, the consistory came together once more, and with the advice of four churches, suspended the revenue and deposed the elders, the case was settled. I also had the decision of four church, which was, by the way, is itself weak. The decision of four church, I say, is weak. Listen. Nevertheless, on the advice of the consistory, we certainly had the right to continue and to proceed. I read the decision. It is clear to our fourth consistory, one, that neither the Reverend Wolf nor the elders involved made the apology demanded by the consistory as advised by classes. Two, that classes advised the consistory 
to proceed with suspension in case that I'm in the wolf and the elders involved should refuse to apologize. Three, that insofar the consistory has the right to proceed with suspension on the basis of the classical decision. And then, however, notice, we are not prepared to say, so that means nothing. We are not prepared to say, they don't say they are prepared to say anything. We are not prepared to say, one, that the consistent meeting can be called legal when half of its members were not notified that it would be held. The consistent, the consistent members knew very well on June 22 that that would be the case. The consistent members, the opposing consistent members could not possibly do anything at that consistent meeting. The consistent members were already condemned by the decision of the consistent June 1. Always done. Always finished. That a suspension can be called in order when the involved were not notified of the fact that the double consistent would be held and the suspension decided on. They were not prepared to say that. In the meantime, they advise us to proceed with the suspension on the basis of the decision of class. That happened in our history. Therefore, this is the situation. I am not heading a faction. I am representing First of all, the only first Protestant Reformed Church in Grand Rapids. If the elders and the Reverend of the Lord had objected against the decision of class and against the decision of the consistory, they could have protested and submit in the meantime. That's what they should have done. We could not do that in 1924 because we were deposed as a consistory. But they were deposed by the consistory. They could have appealed to classes and protested, but they didn't. They're out. And I'm sure that the classes at the next session will refuse to give them a place in the class. Of course they will. They cannot give them a place and they won't have. I'm positive of that. In the meantime, we have decided to leave the buildings. We, that was decided by the contestant. They wanted to have the buildings. In 1924, we had enough trouble about the buildings. I did not desire any more of that trouble. I did not care about the buildings, although I do not voice the opinion of the consistory, of my consistory, when I say this. It's my personal uh, conviction that we should abide by the decision of the consistory made on June 22, 
23, in which they decided that they would leave the buildings, not fight for the buildings, until the matter of the property was settled. In the meantime, the illegal opposition sent us a note that they intended to occupy the building. We decided not to fight about that. We had a place, a nice place, very good place, in the Christian High. And there we meet. We meet with between uh, 550 and 600 people every service. I don't know with how many they meet. We enjoy it. We are immensely relieved that we are out. Immensely relieved. What will become of the buildings? I don't know. We've had a meeting in our own church last Monday night, a meeting of the same nature as we're having now. We wrote a letter to all the members of the congregation announcing such a meeting in the auditorium of our own church. And that meeting... I said that this is still our church, even though we do not meet in it on Sunday. Until, I said, until the question of the property is settled, this is still our church, the church of the legal consistory. After that, they put no locks on the building. They locked us out. Put no locks on the buildings so that we cannot get in at all. I don't know what my consistent does with it. We had a meeting last Monday, but of course I wasn't present. I came west to inform you of the whole business. But my constituent decided I do not know. It may very well be that they, after all, will force us to make some kind of a court case. I hope not, but it's not impossible. We don't like it. I don't like it. I don't care. I'd rather meet in a barn, as we did in 1924 once, or in the community building in the Franklin Street Park, when we were all united than meeting in a nice big church, a palace of a church with strife and contention and false doctrine. We were glad, and we still are glad, that we're out. I thank you. I'm sorry I kept you up so long, but the story is long. I can't help that. That the question has been uh, repeated already. First question is as follows. 
Why was the Reverend H. DeWolf's public explanation apology related to the two-statement heresy charge against him not found acceptable to that part of the First Protestant Reformed Church consistory headed by the Reverend H. Hooksima? Let me say in the first place that uh, there is no part of the consistory that's headed by the Reverend H. Hukuma. That's not so. We have, uh, we had in our consistory three pastors. The Reverend Hanko, the Reverend Wolf, and myself. I was not heading the consistory. Besides, I'm not heading a part of the consistory. I'm president together with the Reverend Hanko, and I was president with the Reverend Wolf of the whole consistory. The consistory that deposed the elders did so according to the advice of the classes, as I explained. Why the apology was not acceptable to the consistory, I think I have explained too. The apology I read here, and the apology as I read here, I explained. It was no apology except that the Reverend Wolf, instead of apologizing for the literally heretical statements, as the classic said, Apologize really for those that misinterpreted the statements. That's what he did. He did not apologize for himself, but apologized for the fact that we misinterpreted the statements. And we deny that we misinterpreted them. We can understand them clearly. We did not misinterpret the statements. Besides that the connection were very bad, and therefore we could not accept the apology. Here are two related questions, and one question to the chair. Uh, number one, do all ministers who do not agree church politically with your stand want a conditional theology mixed in with their sovereign grace preaching, for which they always stood pat. Number two, must I consider each and every one in our churches who does not rally around your standard, in this case, a heretic? Uh, the third question I'll uh, give here yet. Will the chair please ask the questioners if they are satisfied with the answers given? As has been announced, uh, there will be no questions on questions tonight. The meeting would become endless. Uh, if, however, uh, it appears that there is need for more information, I can assure you in behalf of our committee that uh, we're willing to call another meeting of this nature at any time. And if the necessity arises, we will. Now, however, we'll abide by the rules announced in our letters that all questions 
will be uh, collected at once and answered. Now the other two questions I'll turn over to our speaker. Will you repeat that first question? Do all ministers who do not agree church politically with your stand want a conditional theology mixed in with their sovereign grace preaching for which they always stood pat? I don't know whether I understand that question, but I think I do. They mean to say that uh, if they disagree with the action taken legally by our consistory and, of course, by our classes, if they disagree with that, uh, do they necessarily mix in with their preaching of sovereign grace a condition of theology? My answer is no. Simply no. That doesn't follow. I don't think that follows. Does not follow from a church political conception that one must have a conditional theology. That is so. One can very well disagree with the one and still proclaim the other. Only, you must not forget that in that case, the one that so stands should bring his protest. And that should be cleared up. You know, it has been said, let me explain that a minute yet. It has been said that our consistory did wrong. Even the fourth consistory doubted whether we had the right to suspend and depose elders or office bearers in their absence. Let me say in the first place, that there is nothing in the whole church order that demands that any office bearer must be present when he's deposed or suspended. In the second place, let me uh, quote to you all kinds of examples where that has been done by the church in the past. The famous Synod of Dordre deposed Armenian office bearers, Armenian ministers by the hundreds without their being present. Opinion has differed about that, but nevertheless, that's a famous historical example. The Senate of Dordre deposed ministers by the hundreds without their being present. In our own history, the Senate of 1922 deposed Professor Johnson without his being present. 
in the old country, they deposed in 1926 Dr. Haker without his being present. And that the last, latest actions of the sinners of 1939 to 1946 in general. Several office men were deposed. We may disagree on the question whether a classes or senate can depose an office bearer, but certainly it cannot be maintained on the basis of the church order that an officer must be present if he is to be suspended or deposed. That is my answer. But, I say once more, a just political theory does not necessarily involve a conditional theology in the deprecation of the doctrine of sovereign grace. Oh, there was the second question. The second question here. Must I consider each and every one in our churches who does not rally around your standard in this case a heretic? The words in this case are underscored. Uh, I don't like the formulation of that question. It's not a question whether anyone rallies around my standard. No, sir. That's not the question. Not the question at all. The question is whether anyone rallies and not rallies but stands on the basis of the three forms of unity and the scriptures and the three forms of unity as they have always been maintained and explained in the Protestant churches. That's different. You don't have to rally around my standard. That'd be awful. I don't even want you to rally around my standard. I'm a sinful man. I'm a fellow man. I'm going to die pretty soon. What are you going to do then? There's only one thing that remains for you or for me. That's the truth. The truth, as we as Protestant Reformed churches have maintained since 1924. <coughs> If you don't rally around that, yes, you're a heretic. No question about it. Then you must be considered a heretic. If you don't maintain or preach or teach the doctrine of our confessions and of the scriptures, as they have been maintained at the Protestant Reformed Churches for all the years, you must not stay with us. You're not only heretic if you do, but you're hypocrite. 
hypocrite too. Don't stay with us. There are plenty of other churches. Plenty of other churches. Go to the Christian Farm Church. Go anywhere else. But do not corrupt our Protestant Reform truth, please. Leave us. In 1924, when we were cast out, I preached on the text, Will ye not also go away? I preached that again in this connection. On that same text, I preached in the Christian high school. Without malice, without any malice to anyone, I say to you, if you don't believe in the Protestant Reformed Truth, which certainly is not expressed in the, in the sentence, God promises to everyone of your salvation if you believe. Leave us. We're not angry at you. We're not mad at you. When you don't agree with us. If you cannot agree with us, leave us churches. But don't stay and corrupt our churches in the meantime. That is hypocritical. I think. Several questions on this sheet. The first is, how is it possible to depose an elder that has been in office less than 48 hours? I've explained that already. The fact is, that that elder uh, was installed and should not have voted on a thing that he didn't know anything about. At least he should not have known anything about it. But he did nevertheless. He voted against the classes and against the decision of the consistory in June 1. He voted against the question whether the question of apologies should be asked of the minister and of the elders, and therefore, with the elders, he was worthy of deposition. I can't help that. There was an office only 24 hours. I tried to prevent that, as you have understood. I tried, I tried to prevent him from being installed in the office because I claimed that he couldn't possibly serve in this case, but they wanted him. Second is this, is every use of the word condition in theology necessarily Arminian? That all depends what you mean by condition. If you mean by condition, condition in distinction from state, the word condition is perfectly in order any time. I can speak of the condition of my heart, as I can speak of the condition of my body. But when I say, use the term condition as a prerequisite, as something which man must fulfill at all, and that's the meaning, the word is heretical. Of course, you must not forget, in this case, in, in, in my talk, 
I purposely did not enter in to the broad question of condition. I did not. I can, but I won't. That would take me at least another two hours. And I can't keep you the morning. But I will to do it any time you ask me to come back and have a speech on the term condition in Reformed theology. That's something else. You might do that sometime. The third question is this. If you are convinced that you and your consistory are the legal consistory of the First Church, why all this hasty propaganda action? This is not a hasty propaganda action. Not at all. This is merely... Oh, you know very well what it is. Don't ask this question. This hasty? This would have been hasty. That's true. If it had been a matter of the pure local consistory and the pure local church and nothing else. But you know as well as I know that it is not true. Dit meisje gaat een staat hebben. You know that as well as I do. All our actions in recent years have pointed in that direction. Why is it that when any question of importance comes up at our Senate, the vote is always eight to eight, classes west against classes east. Why? I'd like to know. That's a terrible situation, but it's so, nevertheless. Why is it, please? You know as well as I do that this is not a purely local question. I can tell you other things that happened already by us, but I won't mention them now. I don't I don't want to mention names, but I can do so. But I assure you that this is not a hasty propaganda action. This action, this meeting, was merely organized in order to acquaint you with the truth. The rest, oh yes, I almost forgot that. If you want to read, read the standard there. Understand? that many, especially in the West, have refused the standard bear subscription. Shame on you. Don't you want to know the truth anymore? The standard bear is always open for your criticism if you want to. You can write as much as you want to. 
but by all means read as much as you can and then judge. I thank you. One more question from this questioner. Must we help to depose all ministers and members who do not agree with the illegal deposition of the Reverend DeWolf and his consistory? That is the same question I've answered a little while ago. If you do not agree, by all means protest in a legal way. I would like to see that. I'd like to see that. Don't come here with general statements that you don't agree, and then let me answer a question. Uh, what you must do is this. Send a protest to your consistory. Or if you are a consistory member, send a protest. And let it appear at classes in September. Then we'll go to Senate. If you are convinced that the action against the Reverend Wolf and Michael's history is illegal, by all means, that's your duty. And then we can answer the question. Not now. Upon the basis that you, Reverend Huxema, have the true Protestant Reformed truth, and that you claim to be the president of the legal consistory of First Church. Why then do you and your followers hold Sabbath day meetings in the Christian High Building and also call a mass denominational meeting in Grand Rapids to defend you and your cause? And why must your son of doom give the leadership to causing the schismatic action amongst the Protestant Reformed churches of the West? organizing a secret society and calling this meeting here in Hull to defend you and your cause, thereby disrupting the churches of Jesus Christ. I'd like to have my son answer the question. <laughs> I'm glad to do that. Uh, that is the second part, the part that concerns me. The other part, uh, Reverend Hoopsman will answer. My father, uh, very strange that question is directed to him concerning his son. I suppose my father means he is of age. Ask him, and I'm willing to answer. Uh, in the first place, uh, our committee, as is very plain from anyone uh, who read the letters we sent out, is not causing any schismatic action in the churches. Our purpose was stated in the letter, and the purpose of our committee, which we hope to organize permanently, was also stated. Anyone can consult that. Our purpose is simply to maintain the Protestant Reformed truth, and we formed a free society. First of all, a free committee, and we hope to form a free society uh, in the nature of the RFPA, the Reform Free Publishing Association, uh, to further that work. In the second place, our society or committee is not secret, as is very plain from the fact that all our doings we published. We published them in the bulletins, 
and we publish them in the letters, and all our doings are public here tonight as well. There's nothing secret about it. The only thing is, the arrangements for a meeting of this nature had to be made by some committee. Uh, and finally, I want to make this statement, that if anyone claims that I, as president of the committee, pro tem, or any of the members of the committee, are causing schismatic action in the churches, and thereby disrupting the churches of Jesus Christ, serious charge, if anyone claims that, your calling is, once more, to protest to my consistory or to the consistory of any of the men involved. That's your calling. Thank you. The other part is uh, for the speaker. Upon the basis that you, Reverend Uxman, have the true Protestant Reformed truth, and that you claim to be the president of the legal consistory of First Church, why then do you and your followers hold Sabbath day meetings in the Christian High Building and also call a mass denominational meeting in Grand Rapids to defend you and your cause? Again, I don't like that question. Uh, I don't like the wording of it. The question is, upon the basis that you, Reverend Uxuma, have the true Protestant Reformed truth, and that you claim to be president of the legal consistory of the First Church, uh, do you not have the Protestant Reformed truth? That you to mean? Do I have the Protestant Reformed truth as any? Is that the insinuation? I have the Protestant truth. I don't think so. You shouldn't. You should have the Protestant truth, not I. Then the first place. The second place, I claim to be the president of the legal constituency of First Protestant Reformed Church. I am one of them. Hank is the other one. I am. Not a claim. I claim nothing. I claim nothing. I assure you that Classes East, in its next meeting, will accept me as president, together with Reverend Hanko, as president of the legal consistory, without any question. No question about it. There's no question about that at all. I don't claim anything. Why should I? I don't care about that anyway. I don't care to be present about anything at all. That's not my, that's not my claim nor my, my strength. Why do you and your followers, why don't you say, why doesn't your congregation? I have no followers. You and your followers? Then that's an insult to my congregation. You shouldn't word a question like that. You mean, why I am my congregation? Meet at the Christian high? 
I explained that to you, didn't I? Not because we don't uh, have the building, but because we don't want to fight. Want to hear that? I have that here somewhere. I have the decision here. I don't know whether I can find it. Here it is. I have it here, written out. When the enclosed letter was written, that is to the letter to the congregation, you consistently plan to occupy the rightful place on the pulpit of First Church. Notice was given to the disciplined office bearers of our intention in order to avoid confusion and discord in the divine worship next Sunday. We had hoped that some peaceful settlement might be made until proper disposition of the property is made. However, to our request, we received the following reply, quote, We cannot possibly recognize your systematic action and your illogical suspension and deposition of office bearers, and therefore cannot concede you the right to hold meetings in our midst. We therefore notify you that we will occupy the buildings until the proper disposition of the building is made. For signed, the consistency of the First Protestant Reform Church. Since it is evident from the above reply that we are defiantly and illegally cast out of our own place of worship, it would be necessary for us to resort to the law to occupy the building next Sunday. But rather than do that, we would heed the word of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 1, 7b, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? That is the answer to your question. That was sent to our people. And uh, the mass meeting? Yes, the mass meeting was the same mass meeting that was here. Have we no, have we no right as a legal consistory to explain to our own people what is going on in our own congregation? That's what we did last Monday night, week ago on Monday, and to our people in Grand Rapids who ever would be interested, of course. This question is signed, but I'm not going to mention the names. I'm not requiring the names on any of the questions. I won't mention this one, unless the questioner himself wants it. Reverend H. Uxema, I want to ask you this. In 1924, I heard you say time and again, never know hierarchy again. What did you mean for you as yourself? Or did you think of the Church of Christ? If that is what you meant, I cannot see how you can do what you've done with the Reverend DeWolf and his consistory. If this is not hierarchy, then I am at a loss to know what it is. Well, I suppose you are. 
because that is not hierarchy. Hierarchy is rule of the consistory from the top down. When Senate rules over the class, and the class rules over the consistory, then you have hierarchy. This is not the case here. The consistory ruled throughout with the advice of the classes. Advice, not rules. I thank you. The Reverend H. Hooksomer. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. In the aforementioned text, the command of God is expressed. With due respect to this command of God, the question arises in my mind how you, Reverend Hooksomer, can make such slanderous and ridiculous statements concerning a fellow office bearer and brother in Christ, namely the Reverend DeWolf. If claiming that the Reverend DeWolf is not a Christian, and calling him a heathen and a rotten and incurable character is not judging. I am of the opinion that the Bible is being interpreted to suit each man as he chose, regardless of original meaning. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. Not guilty of any of those charges. I did not say that Reverend Wolf was not a Christian. I did not say that he was a rotten member or so on, or that he didn't say anything, anything of the kind. I judge not Reverend Wolf. I judge not his heart. I judge his doctrine. And I judge not his doctrine. The consistent did. And the classes did. And only on the basis of the truth do brethren dwell in unity. And no other basis. I thank you. Why make a protest against statements which Reverend DeWolf denies? Is that not calling him a liar? Who is right? No protest was made against any statement that Reverend Wolf denied. That's not true. The statements which were protested against officially at the consistory and at the classes were admitted by the Reverend Wolf. You state in one of your letters to the members of First Church, quote, be not deceived by those who say that the difference between those that are deposed and us is a mere matter of words. It is a matter of the whole Protestant Reformed truth. The Protestant Reformed truth is that the promise of God is unconditional and for the elect alone. The error which they preach and support is that the promise is general and conditional. Protestant Reformed truth is that God translates us into his kingdom unconditionally. The error they preach and sustain is that our act of conversion 
is a condition for entering into the kingdom of God, unquote. Reverend DeWolf states in his letter to the consistory members of the Protestant Reformed churches, he has never taught that God promises salvation to all men and that it depends on man's own will whether or not he will be saved. Neither does he teach that natural man must convert himself while he is in the power of darkness outside of the kingdom of God. He states, quote, this is contrary to anything that I have ever preached, unquote. My question is, how do you harmonize the two conflicting statements of these two letters, and which one is true? I can answer that very briefly. If the Reverend Wolf actually had not preached, had not meant to preach, had not intended to preach, what he nevertheless said in those two sermons, he could have easily retracted it and apologized. He didn't. He still maintains the statement that God promises to everyone salvation if you believe, he still maintains that our act of conversion is a prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God. He never retracted. He never apologized, which would have been very easy. He didn't. That's his own fault. He preaches. He preached what was in those two statements on April 15, 1951, as September 21, 1952. When in 1922 Professor Jansen was deposed, was he not present because no one informed him of said meeting, or did he refuse to come? He was called to come and defend himself. He refused to defend himself, but was not again officially notified of his deposition. That was the question. Certainly, the Professor Johnson was called again and again. In June 22, the elders were present, and they were asked to apologize, and they refused. But when Professor Johnson was deposed, that's true, then he wasn't there. He was not asked to be there. He was deposed by the sinner. But it's true that he was asked to come and defend himself and be present at the sinner at his case. Is it proper to form a society for Protestant Reformed action without the knowledge of pastors and consistories? Certainly is. And that will be indeed hierarchy. If he had asked the consistory form a society, how do you think the standard bearer was formed in 1923? The standard bearer, when we were still in the Christian formed churches, the RFPA, the Association for the Standard Bear, was formed by a group of men 
And the, the standard bearer was uh, propagandized throughout the Christian Reformed churches. To that, no one ever objected in the Christian Reformed churches. And I assure you, no one will ever object, that is, not successfully anyway, to any other constituents. We are at least a free people organically. We are not under the thumb of any constituent. Not in our free action. Does not suspension and deposition ultimately imply excommunication from the Christian church? I think it does. Although perhaps not always. But if you think of the grounds which are mentioned in uh, the church order and Article 79 and 80, it seems as if suspension from office and deposition from office necessarily implies ultimately excommunication. I cannot see how they can be separated. The only trouble is that usually uh, deposed office bearers they do not want to apologize separate themselves from the churches. That's the case here too. We cannot take action anymore against the revenue war and the deposed elders because they separated themselves. They are not under our jurisdiction anymore. But I think if you consider the list of sins that are mentioned in Article 79 and 80, Yes, I think uh, deposition from office usually must, uh, unless, unless uh, there is deposition and at the same time apology, that's possible too. A minister, for instance, can be worthy of uh, deposition and apologize without ever entering the office again. In that case, he remains member because of his apology. But if a minister is deposed from office or another and does not apologize for a sin, naturally, the excommunication must necessarily follow. From the same questioner, the word repent means to turn around. Why turn around when one is already in the kingdom by regeneration? That's quite a question. That's, a quite a, that's really a very interesting question. Regeneration is first. Regeneration in the narrower sense is first. Regen by regeneration in the narrower sense I mean the implanting of the life of Christ through his Holy Spirit into the heart of a sinner, even without his knowledge and without any activity on his part. That work of regeneration is continued 
by God without the activity or the work of God, the operation of God, even that seed of regeneration would never come to consciousness. But through the word, and by the Spirit I mean through the word in the efficacious sense, the calling of the Son of God, and through the Holy Spirit, that work of regeneration is called to consciousness. Christ says to the sinner, Arise, thou sleeper, awake, thou sleeper, and arise from the dead. That is the voice of Christ. Following upon that comes the act of repentance. Now you can consider that whole work, the whole work of regeneration and repentance, the entering into the kingdom of God, and even that is not conditioned upon anything, but is the work of God, or you can consider the work of regeneration, the entering in of the kingdom of God in the narrow sense, and even there is no prerequisite. And so the act of conversion is never a prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 19, verse 39, speaks of, quote, It shall be determined by a lawful assembly. Can an unannounced consistory meeting, which suspended Reverend DeWolf, stand the acid test of this passage? Certainly. Consistory meetings do not always have to be announced. I should say not. All consistory meetings are not announced. There are plenty of consistory meetings that are not announced. And if it's necessary, uh, that a meeting must be held. And that, for instance, uh, as in this case, a meeting must be held immediately. That meeting does not have to be announced to the congregation. All consistent meetings do not have to be announced. Is it correct that a minority of ten elders deposed a majority of eleven elders, that same principle being applied? Is it not also true that two elders could depose nineteen elders? Of course they can. Sure. One elder can depose twenty elders. Otherwise, could you ever depose a consistent that says heretical? Certainly. One elder can depose 20 elders, or 24 elders, or 30 elders, with the help of the classes. But they do it. They do it. Certainly do. Suppose that the whole consistency becomes corrupt. The whole consistency, without any exception, becomes corrupt. Who must then depose it? Who must depose a consistency that is entirely corrupt? What's your answer? I say the congregation. The congregation can depose a consistency. The congregation calls the consistency. And the congregation can depose it. And can, with the help of the classes, call a new consistory. That's certainly church order. That was always the church order which the Reverend Von Lunkhausen in the former years defended. 
He did not want any hierarchy, but that's certainly true. The congregation is called by the consistory. Uh, I mean, the consistory is called by the congregation, installed by the congregation, and the consistory can be deposed by the by the congregation. And if there's only one elder in the in the whole consistory, that elder can certainly depose the consistory. He must have help, of course, but he does it. Certainly can. Would you say that any person who doesn't agree with you in this matter but takes the side of Reverend DeWolf is not Protestant Reformed? I've already answered that question, I think. Uh, if you will formulate that question again, as it should be, if any person is not agreed with the Protestant Reformed truth, expressed in the three forms of unity as interpreted in the Christ in the Protestant Reformed Church, then he is not Protestant Reformed. I do not count. I, you do not have to agree with me. If you think I'm wrong, protest, but don't talk. If you people were convinced that Reverend DeWolf and his supporting elders were in the wrong, why did you separate instead of appealing to classes? I did not separate. They separated. We deposed them. I did not separate. We appealed to classes. The classes decided to advise us to suspend and depose. That was already decided. You think we must appeal to classes again? We must not appeal to classes. We simply carried out the decision of classes. The advice of classes. That's all. Nothing more. No. They had to appeal to classes, not we. But they didn't. They separated themselves. We didn't. Is the, le is the letter signed by Reverend DeWolf and Mr. S. D. Young, of which we understand all our consistory members received a copy factually the truth or are there lies in that letter? I don't know what you mean by the letter. I didn't receive a letter like that. Uh, I don't know what letter you refer to. Oh, I think I do in a way. I don't have the letter with me otherwise I would read it. But I don't have it. But I think there's one statement in that letter which I recall. I think that's the letter you refer to. The letter states, I think, that in the June 1st meeting, where the decision was made to suspend the wolf for and depose the consistory unless they apologize, that uh, decision was taken under duress. That's not true. There was no duress. I explained to you all that happened at that consistory meeting. Nothing more. I explained to you the whole thing. Duress. Besides, 
the eldest The elders that uh, were present, the opposing elders that were present, certainly did not show any duress. They did not show any strain. They simply stayed where they were. They were not affected. So I think that's the story. No duress, except of course we are the vice of the classes, no more. We could not have influence, exert any duress, any stress upon any of the other consistent members. We didn't either. Why was this mass meeting necessary, and why not wait with any mass meetings here out west till the churches have spoken in their broader gatherings? Oh, I already have answered that, I think. This mass meeting was not called by me. I was asked to speak here. And the reason is also plain. We cannot, uh, we cannot have a thing like this in our churches without doing harm to our Protestant reformed cause unless the people are informed. They must be informed. And they are informed here, without any question. You have a right to know. It has nothing to do with the broader gatherings. The classes have spoken already. The only meeting that has to speak yet is Synod. In the meantime, we have a right to tell you exactly what's happening, and you have a right to know. Is it not premature and entirely out of order if a local consistory at this stage expresses itself officially on the question as to which is the legal consistory of Fuller Avenue? No, of course not. That's the answer to uh, That's not only premature, but that's necessary. How can you? How can you work otherwise? If there, if there is no legal consistory at all, there's no congregation. Now, for the present, the others claim too that they are legal consistory, but they know better. I assure you that they know that they aren't, and I assure you at any rate that the classes will determine that they are not. The classes have spoken. But you cannot do anything else. What else can you do? You cannot wait to determine what's the legal consistency. We decide that for ourselves. We understand you claim that the classes will justify your action of suspension and deposition. How do you know that the classes would not be satisfied with the apology which Reverend DeWolf tendered? Because the classes have already spoken. The classes said, as to the statements, that they are literally heretical, regardless of how the Reverend Wolf explains them. On that basis, it was deposed, suspended. 
Doesn't suspension and deposition principally imply that you excommunicate these men from the Church of Christ in case they do not confess what you claim to be their sin? I've answered that already. What do you think? Should the local consistories take an official stand at this time and express themselves on the question as to what they consider to be the legal consistory of First Church in Grand Rapids? That's a nice question. That may very well become necessary. Suppose that you uh, stand before the question to allow the Reverend Wolf to your puppet. They have to take a stand. They have to take a stand. At least you will have to take a stand whether you're judged right away or not. You'll have to take a stand that until classes they decided you cannot allow a mother pope. You can do the same thing with me if you want to. That stands to reason. If this, of course, I'm not suspended and I'm not deposed. He was. I couldn't decision of class. That's the difference. But if in this, in thus far, the classes will have to take a stand, not only in regard to the Reverend Wolf, but also in regard to other ministers in our churches that have already separated themselves from us. You have to have to know that, and you have to take a stand. That's all. How could Classes East advise the entire course of action which the consistory was to follow in said case? De Wolf and his men claim in their letter that the course of action had not been requested by the consistory, neither by the Protestants. Is that correct? It's not correct. We certainly asked advice in regard to the whole business. Besides, not only uh, is that true, but the classes certainly can be advised. The classes didn't decide anything for the contestory. The classes advised. And since the matter was important, the classes had to advise. But I think if you read the whole business, you'll find that nevertheless that was true. The classes had to decide, not only in regard to the doctrine, but also in regard to the action. Why was not the apology of De Wolf received by the consistory? Who determines the form of a man's apology? Already answered that, I think. What is the difference between statement of De Wolf and Canons 2.5? That's a nice question. Uh, Canis 2.5 states the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ shall be saved which uh, with the command to repent and that uh, that gospel must be preached with a command to repent and believe to all to whom God in his good pleasure 
sense the gospel. I think that is almost literally the canons. Canons 5 teach, Canons 2.5 therefore teach, that the promise of the gospel is for the believers. The promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth shall have eternal life and shall be saved. The statement of the Reverend Wolfers, God promises to every one of you that if you believe you shall be saved. The statement of Canis to five is the particular promise to the believers, that is the elect. The statement of the Reverend Wolf is the general promise to all on condition of faith. That's the difference. It is a well-known fact that many of our people who stood with you in 1924 are not at all with you today. Do you have an explanation for this? And would you say that all those people never were Protestant Reformed? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what truth that is. I'm not interested in it. I assure you, I don't ask you to stand with me. I'm not interested in finding out how many are with me. If I stand all alone, I'll still maintain what I've told you tonight. And you can be the judge. I know that there are many that stood with me in 1924 that ought not to have stood with me. I know that very well. I know there that there are many in my own congregation that could much better go to the Christian Farm Church today and could have gone to the Christian Farm Church years ago than stay with the Protestant Farm Churches. I know that. There are some in 1924 four men be opposed to Protestant Farm School. How is that possible? I don't know. I can't see it. But they do. And they insist. And I want to hear it from the pulpit. I say, brethren, if you are not personally formed, don't stand with me. I don't ask you to stand with me. I never did. I didn't ask that in 1924. I didn't ask that of any of you that I ever organized as churches. Here in Sioux County. Never did. Don't do it tonight. By all means, don't do it tonight. I'm not asking for it. In your first letter to the members of First Church, you speak about two wrong statements by DeWolf. In later letters, much more is added. Isn't that an indication in itself? that you people realize the extreme weakness of your case. Oh, no. The two statements are the only statements that were elicited from the sermons by the consistory and by the classes. That does not mean that the rest of the sermons were all right. Of course not. I cannot even imagine 
I cannot even imagine for myself that I could ever preach a Protestant form sermon and say in my sermon, God promises to every one of you salvation if you believe. I can't even imagine that I could say anything like that. I never did. I couldn't get it over my tongue. But that doesn't mean that that was only a statement, that the rest was all right. Oh, no. The rest is true, too. But the consistory elicited those statements, and so did the classes condemn them. That's all. Is it true that you walked out of the consistory meeting held on the evening of June 22? If so, may we know why. And is it also true that you urged your elders to walk out with you and have a separate meeting? No. The latter is not true. The first is true. I walked out. We couldn't do anything anymore. I walked out of the consistory and I told them, I cannot meet with this consistory anymore. You oppose us and block our, our uh, actions all the way through. I cannot work with such a consistory. I left for that reason. But I didn't ask my house to go. That's up to them. That's all. I did not. Why was this meeting called by the Committee for Protestant Reformed Action, and why were all our ministers, with the exception of one, and all our consistories bypassed? Doesn't that look very suspicious? Well, that's up to my center answer. I have no business there. Uh, then mostly answered. Uh, the purpose of the meeting is plain tonight. It was called for information. Uh, bypassing the ministers and consistories uh, has nothing to do with the matter. The organization is free. We did not bypass them either. Every minister was informed and asked to announce it, and he had the right, if he wanted to, and as I understand some did, to bring it to their consistories before they announced it on the bulletins. Uh, they were invited as well as the members of the churches to be present here tonight, and they're invited, uh, if they wish, to go along with us in our Committee for Protestant Reformed Action still, as we invite uh, all of you who wish to support us in this work. Here's the next question. Rumors have it that you said at the mass meeting in Grand Rapids that too many people went <coughs> along in 1924, that you are not interested in numbers, etc. I would like to know, one, how do you explain that in those days you traveled all over the country, wherever you found an opening, and organized various churches and were willing to accept almost anybody without asking any questions as to their doctrinal soundness. May we have a little light on this. Two, is it true that you are not interested in numbers? If so, how come you are here out west right now? Both questions can be answered very easily. The first is not true. Anyone that has heard me from 1924 on, here in the West, knows very well that that is not true. I never asked people to organize as churches. Before 
they understood the doctrine. Before they understood our opposition against the three points and against the doctrine of common grace. I remember in those years I spoke for two hours and a half in a stretch to explain to the people again and again and again the doctrine of the three points. Did I ask for people, for, for members that ever looked for members? I did not. I say before yours and before God that that was never my purpose. The same is true of this meeting. You think I came here uh, to gather people? I told you again and again this evening that I didn't. I want you to know the truth and then make your own decision. I thank you. Did you and Reverend Opla vote on the evening of June 22 and thus voted in your own case? I did not. I did not vote in my own case. That was the case of the elders and the Reverend Wolf, as had already been decided by the classes. It was no longer a case of me. It was a classical decision. And as soon as it became a classical decision, I certainly, as elder, had not only the right but the duty to vote, and I did. Why were the eleven elders and Reverend DeWolf not notified of the consistory meeting which you called together on the evening of June 23? Doesn't that look bad for the public or our churches? I already explained that, I think, did I? The reason why they were not notified is simply that it was not necessary to notify them at all because they had already voted against their own suspension. How can you people defend before the churches, before God, that you deposed an elder from his office who had scarcely served in the consistory for two days and with whom you never had labored? I explain that too. Why do you not read the apology of the Reverend DeWolf without all your own additions and explanations? Well, that's my business, I think. I read, I read the apology literally and faithfully and with my own comments as well will make them anytime, anywhere. There certainly is. I have the right to explain to you why that apology is no good. That's certainly my right. Certainly is. Does not the Bible read, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Am I not directed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? These questions are asked removed from their context, as you accuse Reverend DeWolf in removing his statements from their context. I don't know what that means. Uh, of course believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved I preach on that if you want me to in fact I think if I may preach on that I'll preach on that next week and next uh, Sunday in June if I uh, let me preach I don't know whether they will 
but otherwise I preach on that, on that very text. Uh, that's a very beautiful text, by the way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You think that means the same thing as saying God promises every one of you salvation if you believe? Can't you discern? Of course, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, maybe I won't preach on it. Sunday. Maybe I won't preach Sunday. But if I preach on it now, I'd say this. If I say believe, it means nothing. Don't forget that. I say to you, believe. And to you, believe. And to you, believe. Has no effect. No effect upon the elect. And no fact about the reprobate. No fact at all. But, if Christ says, believe, not I, but Christ, as was the case with the Philippian jailer, through the preaching of Paul, if Christ says, believe, then that preaching has a twofold effect. Upon the elected has the effect that they will believe, as the jailer did. And upon the reprobate, it has the effect that they become mad and hardened and aggravate their judgment. That's what, what Christ says, not what I say. So, if I ever preach on that, then you can depend on that. I'll preach on it in that light. I thank you. Two more questions. Is it always necessary for a consistory to abide by decisions of classes? Is the first one. No. But if the matter is serious, as was in this case, and if then the consistory would not abide by the decision of classes, then of course the only course of action to take is that they separate themselves after they have appealed to Senate and Senate has justified classes the only uh, the only way is that they separate themselves from the churches or that the churches express that since they do not abide with the decision of the major assemblies they are no longer of the Protestant Reformed churches this is the last one some seem to be of the opinion that the consistory meeting where Reverend DeWolf and the elders that stood with him were suspended was an illegal meeting as they had not called the Reverend DeWolf and the elders. What is the church political procedure on such a particular case? There is, as I said, there is nothing in the church order that calls for a meeting with the elders that are to be deposed and the minister that is to be suspended. There's nothing in the church order that requires anything of the kind. And as I said in my talk, or in my answer, uh, there are plenty examples, historical examples to the contrary. Well, is this the last? That's all.
Well, brethren, I hope that you have not found me personally offensive. You cannot say that. You cannot go out and say that I was offensive. I was not. I avoided personal enmity, malice, and hatred. There's nothing in my heart that even has anything to do with it. All my purpose was that you may be acquainted with the case, nothing else. Please bear that in mind. Bear that in mind. Please consider the question itself. Have you come to the conclusion that I'm all wrong? All right. Same good friends, but not in the same church. Remember that. I said in my introduction, I'm not looking for converts. I'm not looking for crowds. I'm not looking for numbers. It's up to you now. I've done my best. I've had it. I have it off my conscience. It's up to you to decide. I'm very glad, nevertheless, that you came. It's always disappointing when people are not even interested to know the truth or to judge the truth. For that reason, I'm very glad that you came. I thank you for your attention, and I say to you, God's blessing. Goodbye.